Thank you for listening to a Christ Church Showman. This is Jared Sparks, one of the pastors at Christ Church Carbondale. We want to thank you so much for listening, as Ransom said, my son. And we ultimately hope that these are God-honoring. And because they are God-honoring, we hope that they are also edifying and encouraging and, and challenging to you in the best sort of way. Thanks so much for listening. Thing. We're in Hebrews chapter 12 today. You can go ahead and turn there in your Bibles. We're going to be in verses 4 through 11. And the sermon title this morning is The Fatherhood of God and the Discipline of His Sons. The Fatherhood of God and the Discipline of His Sons. As a church family, we take seriously commands given to men and women. We believe them and we want to obey them. And one small way that we want to model that in this church as the men is a simple way we can follow the commands of God to us. That when we're together, that the men should lift up holy hands. And it's an easy way for us to follow, just to follow the obedi- obediently in the commands of the Lord as men and set the example for our families. And when we do this, when we lift up holy hands and express these, the, this obedience with our, with our hands lifted up high... Our children see that, our wife sees that, the people in the congregation see that. And it's a simple way of just saying, I want to follow God as a man and the commands that he has given me. And that's so critical for you ladies, and it's so critical for children to follow the commands that God has given you specifically. So I'm going to pray and lift up holy hands and ask the men in the room to do the same as we go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we come to you recognizing your supreme authority. We come to you as Father, praying to you in the way Jesus taught us to pray. And we're recognizing that you are holy, that you are altogether other from your creation. And we want to come to you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ this morning and through the power of the Holy Spirit. And we're asking for your leadership. We want to honor you and be faithful to your words. And we trust you're going to help us to do that. Help us to receive all that you have for us to receive this morning and to obey in every way we can obey This morning and as we leave this week. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 4 through 11. Let's read the text this morning. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary When reproved by him, for the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom the father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which we all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, We have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good that we may share in his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. This is the word of the Lord. Discipline equals freedom. One former Navy SEAL said it that way, Jocko Willink. He said discipline equals freedom. Discipline is very, very 
good. Personal discipline is very good. Personal discipline is a, a man or a woman who has self-control and they're able to bridle their passions and be disciplined when it comes to a regimented life or some task that's in front of them or some challenge that is in front of them. Personal discipline is a very good thing. When a parent disciplines a child, that is very good. It is easy to not discipline. It's difficult to discipline. It's even more difficult to be consistent with discipline. It's easier to throw a fruit snack at their way or throw a phone at their way and just hope that that makes them a little bit more docile if they're being angry or having a fit. But discipline, contrasted with that, is much more difficult, but it's very good. When a parent refuses to discipline, they are walking in disobedience to God. And when a parent refuses to discipline their children... What they're doing is they're helping their children become disobedient to God because God has commanded children to obey their parents in the Lord. When we do not require that from them, we make the path to disobedience that much easier. Parents must discipline their children. Now, personally, if you lack discipline, back to personal discipline, you will end up being enslaved to your passions, sinful passions. If you don't have that self-control, which is kind of a cousin to discipline, if you don't have that in your life or don't learn to walk in that the longer you go in your life, what ends up happening is you begin to coast and coast and be lazy and be lazy, and you end up with unbridled or unchecked passions. So personal discipline is a must. And then back to children. Parents disciplining their children is a very good thing. Think about discipline in this manner as we talk about it this morning. Discipline is not just corrective discipline or chastisement. Discipline includes training, it it includes requiring obedience, teaching how to obey, giving children wisdom, and think about this in the context of God our Father, giving His children wisdom through the Word and through the Spirit. God assigns punishments for disobedience, and God even spanks us, disciplines us for our good, But he does not beat us in anger. He fatherly, he cares for us in a fatherly manner. And he's never disciplining us out of anger. Lessons that we must learn as parents. And it's all good. Children are called to not despise the discipline of their parents. Do not despise it. And we should not despise the discipline of the Lord. When parents discipline children, it's because they love their children. When God disciplines us, it's because he loves us. And parents who let their children run the house are not functioning in love. They're actually practically functioning in hatred. And if you peel back the layers of an undisciplined home or an undisciplined life, what you end up getting to the ugly root, you get to this root where it's an ambivalent person who doesn't care if they or others obey the Lord. Lack of discipline grows from rotten soil. So we've got to address some of these things today. Christians are not to despise the discipline of the Lord. We are to love it. We are to thank God for it. That we are legitimate children. That we are not illegitimate children. Today we're going to be talking about some things that are deeply personal. because, And I know they're deeply personal because we're talking about the word father and fathers. And fathers have long had power over the world and over their children. Both for the ill or for the good. Some of you grew up in homes with a steadfast 
incredible father, with a, just a man of integrity, a man that you want to be like. And others grew up in a home where you didn't even know your father, just an absent father. Or you grew up in a home with a very absent father, even though he was present. And for all of us, when, we th- when you start thinking about your father, and you start thinking about God as father, all these connections and things go on in your head and your heart. And there, there's just something that happens when people start talking about their father or see a good father, even if, if, if that good father is on the television, something happens inside of them. In fact, there are men that live their entire life living for the approval of their father and little girls living their entire life longing for the approval of their father. There's something about a father in his presence or absence that has massive effect. And it's because we live in a father centered world. And we're going to see that this morning. But first, we're going to make this connection clearly, and I think the connection is here, and it may not be as obvious or clear, but it definitely is here. And we see that in verse 4, as verse 4 sets the stage for where we're going here today. We'll start in verse 3 and connect last week with this week. Verse 3 says this, Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Verse 4, In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted, To the point of shedding your blood. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. The connection here is with the suffering of Jesus and the suffering of God's people. The connection here is with considering Jesus, what he did and what he has done for sinners as sinners were hostile against him. And what we're told is we need to remember our place as we're, as we're struggling, as we're suffering. The, the Hebrew Christians here knew this well, and they've been dealing with suffering, with persecution, with uh, being ostracized because of their confession of faith in Christ. And what Jesus reminds them of, or what Jesus in his obedience reminds them of, of, of immense suffering under immense persecution. And the apostle wants them to remember that. In other words, Jesus has suffered more than you, and you need to remember this. Keep your resistance to sin in perspective. There's always more room for you to fight sin. There's always more more room for you to resist sin. Jesus, on the other hand, resisted sin every single moment of every single day to the point of being under such intense pressure and temptation from the enemy and all the pressure of feeling the shame that he, that, that he despised so much. He was under all the pressure of feeling all that same and, uh, shame and all the accusations of the enemy and he resisted sin to the point of blood. Jesus actually sweat blood from his head. We need to keep our resistance against sin in check and our understanding of Jesus' resistance in the forefront. Jesus resisted against sin. And one of the things we need to keep in mind as we've been walking through the book of Hebrews is that Jesus' resistance to sin is counted as ours. Talk about just a fresh dose of grace for us as we start off this morning. Talk about being disciplined as sons. One of the connections that's just all the way through the book of Hebrews is Christ's life for our life. His life counted as ours. His death counted for ours. And so when we think about Jesus' resistance against sin, one of the things we have to keep in mind is that Jesus lived his life on our behalf. And it included things like that. When Jesus is resisting sin and you're facing your temptations and struggles in sin and you're resisting and you feel like you're resisting all you can possibly do with all of your might, just remember or consider that Jesus resisted more than you. And in that moment of your battle against sin, you are counted as one who did this thing perfectly. 
That is such help and it's so critical for us as we think about this passage today. Jesus was obeying his heavenly father as a son. And he was doing that in the place of every son that follows. You and I are going to be called the sons and daughters. When we, when we think sons of God, that includes the daughters of God. It's this generic term like mankind includes women as well. Or like brothers in Christ includes women as well. It's this term that includes everybody. When we think about sons, ladies, you're included in this. And this is what Jesus was doing for us on our behalf. He was living as an obedient son To a father. And that's what we're going to be talking about today. As Jesus is resisting sin to the point of death, he was doing that as a father, as a son to a father, and he did that in our place. And so today, we're going to talk about the fatherhood of God and the discipline of his sons. And if you don't understand what Christ has done for you, this whole sonship language is not going to make sense at all. Because as followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, as those who have been born again, we are no longer enemies of God. We are children of the Most High God. Jesus became an enemy of his Father so that you and I could become sons of the Most High God. And it's an amazing thing to be counted not as illegitimate children of a Father, but as blessed and loved by the Father, legitimate sons because of what Christ has done for us. And so positionally, you guys must understand as we talk about the discipline of God to you, That this is in the context of a relationship of a father to a real son. You are real sons of the Most High God. Ladies, you don't have a second, second hand inheritance. You are also, just like you, just like me and every other man in this room, you are a full inheritor of the promises of God in Christ Jesus. And so don't do what modern feminists do and read this and think, or what my seminary professors did when they read passages like this. They said, instead of saying sons, every time the text says sons, we have to include daughters. Or every time it says brothers, we have to include sisters. Or every time it says whatever it may be, we have to have this gender-inclusive language. And they were advocates of actually putting that into the text, even though it wasn't there. Ladies, be stronger than that. And just know that the promises that God gives to his sons are to you as well. You are not second-hand citizens in the kingdom of heaven, but you are counted as full inheritance, full rights as sons. One of the things that men have to get used to is being called the bride of Christ. Feels kind of strange if you get kind of like peel back the layers and think about it. Wait a minute, the bride of Christ, he's the bridegroom. And the Bible doesn't make any apologies about that. And the Bible also doesn't make any apologies about not saying sons and daughters. And so the sons, ladies, today, hear this. This is for you as well. We are children of the Most High God. And in that context, we have some great things coming our way. Verse 5. Have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary When reproved by him for the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. The apostle asks a question. Have you forgotten the admonition? Have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? The suffering that you are facing is not for nothing. God is at work in you. It's almost like he's wanting them to reflect and remember that this endurance, this suffering is all do, it's doing all that it's intended to do, but it's not for nothing. It's not arbitrary. And God is at work in you. And the argument of the apostle is in accordance with the Old Testament. The Lord disciplines those he loves. This is from Proverbs chapter 3, verse 11 and 12. 
The Lord disciplines those he loves. He loves us, so he disciplines us. It's not that complicated here this morning. Don't regard it lightly. God's going to discipline you. He's going to train you. He's going to reprove you. He's going to chastise you. And the reason he's going to do this is because he loves you. That's why. We've got to figure out what does that mean. And so we're going to get some answers to that. Verse 7. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? Discipline and endurance. The last few weeks we've been talking a lot about this word endurance. From the squeaky sermon a couple weeks ago where I was chanting and shouting endurance. To last week, there's a connection with the discipline of the Lord or the training of the Lord and this word endurance. So we got to ask first, when we talk about the word, we, we got to find out what is discipline. It is for discipline that you have to endure. So what is this discipline that's being talked about here? We've already said it, sort of, but to make it more plain, the discipline of the Lord in the life of his sons is never punitive. It's never wrathful. Because Jesus is the propitiation for our sins. Jesus took the very wrath of God away from you. So for those who are in Christ Jesus, they do not experience the wrath of God. They experience the discipline of their father. Whereas non-Christians, if they don't know the Lord, the wrath of God is upon them. And if they don't become Christians, they'll never know the discipline of their heavenly father. They will only know the wrath of God. But for you and I, positionally, we've gone from this position of being a vessel of God's wrath to now a vessel of his mercy. And so what comes our way as a father to a son is not out of anger, but it's out of love. Some of the connections between how a parent disciplines their children is so apparent as you get through here. It's so clear. The connections are here that parents are not to discipline in anger. And how easy it is at times when behaviors flare up to discipline or to speak out of anger rather than out of control and precision and under the direction and leading of the Holy Spirit. You see, the Father disciplines us because He loves us. It's not, it's not wrathful. It's not punitive. But also... The idea of this word discipline is in the exact same way as Ephesians chapter 6 verse 4. It's the word paideia. This is about training. It's about instruction. It's about the culture and the ways of the Lord. In Hebrews or in Ephesians 6 4 it says, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. What we're talking about primarily here today is this idea of training or building up, making somebody strong through instruction and reproof. Our Heavenly Father disciplines the Christian toward holiness. Disciplines the Christian towards holiness. And so in this passage today, as we learn about the fatherhood of God, we're going to learn much about fatherhood or parenting in general. And the idea, there's a a misguided idea out here that we are to learn about God or get our theology about God as Father from earthly fathers. In other words, it goes like this. Uh, a good father's like this, well, that, therefore, God must be like this. And if you do theology that way, you're doing it backwards. It's inverted. It's not the right way. What we should be doing is asking the question, how does God father his children? That is going to define what good fatherhood looks like on this earth. 
So however God is towards his children, and if it includes discipline and instruction, if it includes chastisement, if it includes these things, then good parenting, being a good father to my children or a good father to, to people in the world or even being a good spiritual father to others, it's going to include things like that as well. It's going to include things like challenges and failure. It's going to include not always sweeping in and saving the day in the moment that the child wants the father to step in and save the day. So we have to learn fatherhood from God, not learn about God by way of fatherhood. Does that make sense? It's critical that we do that. So we're going to learn a lot today. We, we want to father our children the way God fathers us. Now here's the deal. God is in the business He's in the business of not letting us be unfit for life. God God is in the business of training up his sons to be able to live life well. To to be able to endure well. To be able to handle challenges. To be able to walk in holiness. God is about training us up and building us up. Not leaving us in a state where we can't live life. That we can't do what he's called us to do. And so he trains us through endurance, endurance in the Christian life, going through difficulty in the Christian life is training ground for holiness. It's God's training ground. He's building us up in his ways. And the question that's asked is what son is there whom the father does not discipline? We think about discipline. What are the things that we discipline? Well, what are the things that could be qualified as discipline? Let's just think about this. Any, any difficulty in your life, when you ask the question, well, what is the discipline of the Lord then in my life? Any difficulty that requires rejecting the flesh, this is a training ground for you then. You're, you're being trained in this. If there's a temptation that's come to you, this is, uh, this is your training ground. This is God building you up. This is you being trained. God is not tempting you to sin, but somehow or another, this temptation to sin or this struggle that you're facing has its part or has its place in building you up. Any difficulty that comes your way that requires you to walk in the spirit and not in the flesh is going to require you learning from the discipline of the Lord. Virtually everything in your life is the training ground in which the Lord is breaking down something sinful in you and something that God is building up in you toward holiness. Virtually any challenge of your life, you can think, what's God doing here? Well, God's doing something. He has something for me in this because it's requiring me to be dependent upon the Holy Spirit. It's requiring me to fight against the flesh. Okay, so discipline is more than a spanking. Discipline is about training. It's more than just saying, do this or don't do this. It's teaching us how to do this and not do this. And this is what God's up to in our life. Verse 8, we're told this. If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Every Christian is disciplined by the Lord. Every Christian, without exception. And every Christian should want that training from God. Every Christian should want it. The discipline of the Lord, in other words, is a gift that you and I alone get to receive because a non-Christian doesn't know anything of it. Only Christians receive this sort of fatherly care. This is a privilege of the redeemed. We talked about drawing near to God and He will draw near to us. That being a promise to Christians. 
that we have this great privilege of entering in or drawing in and this promise that when we draw near to God, God will draw near to us. In the same way, this is a privilege that's given to us that you are a privileged group. By the grace of God, you get to receive the disciplining hand of the Lord in your life. And this is a good thing. The wrath of God for non-Christians, the discipline of the Lord for Christians. We, we need to untie a theological knot real quick because for years the discipline of the Lord really was a struggle for me because of the doctrine of justification and imputation of righteousness. And I, I love the doctrine of justification. We've talked a lot about it. And the doctrine of justification is what differentiates Christians from every other religion in the world and differentiates us between the Catholic Church as well. Every other religion says justification is out there. Christianity the real gospel says Christianity is on the front end of this thing. We can be right with God right now. And the reason we can be right with God right now is because of this thing called imputation. We've talked about this the last couple of weeks. Jesus on the cross was counted as a sinner. Your sins were imputed to Jesus. And what was imputed or given to us or counted as ours is the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's imputation, two-way imputation here. Jesus takes our sins and is counted as a sinner. You and I take Jesus' righteousness and we're counted as righteous. Therefore, when God sees us, He sees the account of holiness and good works, not just in the middle ground, morally neutral, where all your sins are forgiven, but when the God the Father looks at us, He sees the bank account of righteousness totally full, all the way up to the life that Jesus lived. This is the glory of the doctrine of justification. It's, it's so good that it, people say, there's no way that can be true. You've got to have skin in the game. And the gospel message is the only message in the world that says, if you want skin in the game, you're on the highway to hell. This is all about what Jesus has done for you. And so with that doctrine of imputation of righteousness, right now, everybody that's a Christian then, when God the Father sees you, he sees the life of Jesus counted as yours. And you are in right relationship with the sovereign judge of the universe because of what Jesus has done for you. There's not ever a minute in your entire life that God, the rest of your life, if you're born again, where God the Father does not see Jesus' perfect life as yours right now. That's the doctrine of justification. It's phenomenal news. You think about, well, I don't know all the bad stuff I'm going to do, the sins I'm going to struggle with in the future. Yeah, God does, and he's already justified you. He knew all the things you'd mess up in the future. He knew all the sins that you would still struggle with, even though you were filled with the Holy Spirit. He knew the battles that you would face, and he justified you anyways because of the perfect work of Jesus. Now, here was the theological knot for me about sonship. In this passage in particular, for years, until about five or six years ago, I wrote a, a small little article on justification and adoption. Because when you and I become a Christian, we are fully justified. But we are also adopted into the family of God as sons. And if we're not careful in our articulation of the doctrine of justification, it won't be very personal to us because we won't understand sonship. Let me explain. How can God discipline us or train us in righteousness, discipline or chastise or correct us, if he only sees the work of Christ in us? How does that work? And when you first get into the doctrine of of the grace of God or imputation of righteousness, what ends up happening is you don't, you begin to not have a frame of reference to how to be fully biblical. 
Because you see that, and it's like, how have I never seen this before? My life for yours, Jesus for me. I'm, I'm counted as righteous. This is the greatest thing ever. Then how can God discipline us as sons if he only sees the righteousness of Jesus in us? And this is going to be a paradox of biblical theology that's so glorious. Because when it comes to justification, our standing before God, it is fixed and permanent and eternal. You have eternal life, not just temporary life. You have eternal life given to you. Because of what Christ has done for you. And simultaneously, somehow in this area, this Christian doctrine of adoption, as we are in relationship with our Heavenly Father, God fixes his attention on the work of Christ on our behalf. And somehow also does see our sin and struggle in a way only God can. And he doesn't give us punitive action towards us because he's already dealt with those sins in that punitive way. So in this other category over here called adoption, Christian, is the, Christian adoption, God doesn't see your sins in a wrathful way, but he does see your sins as a, as a father sees the sins of a son. And he trains us up and he builds us up out of those on the road to holiness. So you and I never need to fear condemnation. But what is Conviction. Conviction is the Holy Spirit convicting us, and God the Father sees this in our life. It's not, He has removed our sins as far as the East is from the West, and yet, He still sees what's going on in your life right now, your sins and your struggles. And so He is taking care of that. He's building you up. He's disciplining you. He's instruction, instructing you to walk out of that. And so if we're not careful, We'll look at passages like this and think, well, that's just a contradiction and the, and the apostles are contradicting one another because obviously the, the author of Hebrews in this moment forgot the doctrine of imputation. Oh, no, no, no. You see, we are fully justified and that's the whole foundation of this thing called sonship. But now as sons of the Most High God, we're living as sons with a father. And we want to make it our aim to please him, not to appease him because we cannot appease him. Jesus did that on our behalf. But we do want to make it our aim to honor him as a son honors a father. And all of this is under the banner of no condemnation. This is the conviction of the Holy Spirit. Now, let me just ask you this. Um, this week, I experienced the conviction of the Holy Spirit. I hope it happens for you regularly. When you're convicted by the Holy Spirit, the flesh and the devil want to turn that and twist that into condemnation. But lest we do what some Christians do who grab hold of imputation of righteousness, some people want to villainize conviction of the Holy Spirit. I've read it with my own eyes, people who say conviction is not of the Lord because we are totally forgiven, and that is a lie. We are convicted by the Holy Spirit about sin. And you and I have both felt it. We know the difference. We should. And as we walk with the Lord. We know the difference between condemnation and conviction. But, but brother con conviction can sting. And it can hurt. And it, it, it brings you to a place. Where you want to repent quickly. But you just don't want to do that anymore. Or I just. God's just not letting me get away with that anymore. I hate that. You ever had a moment. Where God revealed something to you that you didn't realize is an issue. And you're like, where'd that come from? Friends, this is the conviction of a father to a son. Because he's committed to your holiness. And if you don't understand the, 
the, the, the unity of, of justification and adoption. In the one hand, if you understand adoption, when I was growing up, I, lived, I was a part of a church that really understood sonship. They're always talking about, I'm a son of, of the Most High God, and it's all about sonship, but they do nothing, little to nothing about justification. And so re- regularly, their measurement of their spiritual relationship with God, whether God is happy or not with them, is how their performance was. They didn't understand justification. That they were right with God because of Jesus. They were only on this adoption piece. But friends who love biblical theology, if you love that you are justified and love the doctrine, the, the, ground, the, the crown jewel of the Christian faith, the doctrine of justification, if you love that so much that you miss adoption, that you are a son of God, you too are going to miss so much that God has for you. And so we are sons of the Most High God. And God disciplines us as sons. And this is different than the kind of discipline that happened on the cross. This is training you and building you up and breaking you down and building you up so you would live as he would have you live. This is what the father of spirits does. Verse 9. Besides this, we have all had earthly fathers who discipline us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? We have had fathers in the flesh. We have a father in the spirit. Without getting too complicated in what that means. Earthly fathers discipline us. And we respected them. And in a minute we're going to get back to this fatherhood business of earthly fathers. But what does fatherly discipline include? If you think about earthly fathers discipline, heavenly father disciplines. What do, what do good earthly fathers do? Well, they provide a context of love where the children are known that they're loved by the father. We were watching Little House last night. Any Little House fans in here? Love some Little House. And uh, yeah, what was that? Yeah, Little House on the Prairie. Those who really know the show call it Little House. So, you know, you just shorten it. Char- it, was a fla- it was an episode of the flashback with Charles and Carolyn when they were kids and when they met. And uh, Ransom loved the episode. It was good one, wasn't it? And the episode was uh, about Charles in school. He meets Carolyn, and they're, they're, you know, there's, they're, there's a spark of, ooh, you know, you like each other, junior hires or whatever. And Charles kept getting in trouble at school. And you think about Charles, you're like, man, he's a, he's a straight-laced guy. I couldn't imagine him ever being in trouble, kind of like me. And uh, where's Vicki Moore? Where's she at? She's out here somewhere, yeah. Uh, so <clears throat> Charles is back in school. He's getting in trouble over and over again from this teacher. But what you find out is it, this teacher just had... Uh, he just had some issues. This teacher, he, he really didn't like Charles, and it was really the teacher's fault. The teacher just had some major issues, kept spanking Charles over and over and over again, just kept spanking him, kept spanking him, and getting in trouble. And so um, one day, the teacher, uh, so one day Charles ties the teacher around the outhouse with a rope, and the teacher's in the outhouse and can't get out because he's all tied up. It's a great joke. So uh, the teacher was livid and he goes over to uh, Lansford. Lansford was Charles's dad. I thought that name was, that's a name out there you can name your kids uh, if you're looking for names. But Lansford is Charles's dad. And the teacher comes over. He tells Charles what he did. And he said, Charles, did you do this? He tells uh, Lansford what, what Charles did. He said, yeah, Paul. Called him Paul, just like the girls call Paul, Paul. He said, yeah, Paul, I did. And uh, he took his belt off and he handed it to the teacher. And the teacher spanked him twice he grabbed his hand and he said, that's enough. He took the belt back and he said, 
I've heard about how you've been treating my son. And the teacher said, Charles has been doing this or that. Did he tell you this? And he said, Charles didn't tell me anything. The older boy did. And he said, if I ever hear you do treat my son like that again, I'm going to come up and I'll whoop you right in front of every one of your, te- every one of your students. And that moment was so powerful. We were just watching it and thinking, way to go, Lansford. Way to go. Yeah, rough that teacher up if he mistreats your son again. And that teacher got the message loud and clear. He, he went running back. And here's the deal. You and I have a heavenly father that has our back. He's for us. And as good fathers, we have the backs of our children. I love my kids. And I, I will protect my family to the death. Good fathers provide security, safety, a context of love. What else do good fathers do? Well, good fathers also, if they're training their children, they provide, they provide positive challenges for them. They provide opportunities for their children to fail and learn coming alongside and bringing instruction along the way. Good fathers discipline their children verbally and physically in appropriate manners. Good fathers do these things. That's what fathers do. Well, good fathers, I plan on the best I can as I try to be the best father I can. I plan on from the age of 12 to 18, providing six rites of passages for my sons that are include, that are going to include very difficult challenges for them. And the reason I'm going to do that is because I love them. I want them to be prepared. I want my sons at 18 to be prepared to take a family, to be married, to work hard, to provide. I want my daughter, as she's being trained by Jordan, to be ready. I don't want adolescence to be extended 25, 26, 30. All, my goodness, how much adolescence has been extended. And so we are going to do the best we can as parents because we love our kids. How much more then, if children should be subject to their earthly fathers, the text and the argument lays out for us, shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? Subjection to our Heavenly Father, there's life for us. It's good to be subject to our Father. It's good to be disciplined by Him. It's a good thing. So as Christians, if we try to do everything we can to avoid it, or we come up with some sort of theological construct to say that God doesn't discipline His children, then we miss all the good things that God has for us. And whether we understand the discipline of the Lord or not, if we're truly Christians, whether we love it or not, we're getting it. Because the only way we don't get the discipline of our Heavenly Father is if we're illegitimate children. And illegitimate children, like all other false converts that are in the book of Hebrews, they wash out. They end up walking away. They end up apostatizing, leaving the faith, abandoning who they used to call Father. We have a physical Father. We have a spiritual Father. And in verse 10, we see this contrast. Because earthly fathers, even the best of them out there can't compare to our heavenly father they just can't compare verse 10 for they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them but he disciplines us for our good he disciplines us for our good Uh, earthly fathers discipline us as best they could for a short time even the best fathers fail Um, dads out there young and old older men As you look back, if you're blessed to be a father, you would say that there are some things in your life as a father you would have done differently. Can I just get some, this is a moment of honesty. 
older fathers in the room that have grown kids. Okay? It's honest. And knowing the men in this room, we got some of the best men in this room that I know. Younger fathers already, your fathers, they're already you discovered that there's some things that you would have done differently. Let's see some shows, show of hands here. Or that you want to do differently. Hey, yep. Even the best fathers have indwelling sin. Even the best fathers have indwelling sin. Even the best fathers fail in their judgment or discipline. And sometimes they discipline out of anger instead of love. Sometimes they deal with the sin of avoidance. Sometimes hobbies are a good out for the hard work of discipline. Sometimes passing discipline off to our wives looks like wisdom or could be defended as wisdom. And sometimes as we trust our one flesh, our helper, our wife to discipline and exercise that discipline, we need to do that. But sometimes we put too much on our wives instead of taking the responsibility that God has given us. Instead of providing that structure of love, there's just more that we could do. There's always more. Even the best fathers miss teachable moments. And some of you, this is where, this is where things get uh, pretty personal here. Some of you missed those teachable moments altogether because your dad, his biggest impact on you was his absence. And fathers have power. It's just the, it's just the way it is. Fathers have power. And every one of you, if you could just stop and think about your father, not that we're all laying on a couch pulling up things from our past, but as you think about your dad, you can remember the success and failures of your father. You can think about him, you can remember moments like, man, he hit it out of the park there. Or, I don't know, I didn't have any opportunity because he wasn't around. There is an incredible scene in The Fresh Prince of Bel-Air where People saw the acting power of Will Smith. Uh, legit. I mean, there's no joke. And it was the episode where his father showed up at Uncle Phil's house. His father was a truck driver. Shows up and says, I'm going to take you, Will. I'm going to take you with me on a trip. Anybody seen this episode? It is. It's incredible, isn't it? You can't watch it and not. It's, it's, if you don't cry, you're pretty hard of heart. Um, and... His father's like, I'm going to take you, Phil. Or, I'm going to take you, Will. I'm going to take you, Will. I'm going to take you, Will. The morning he was supposed to take Will on this trip, Will's grown now. You know, he's probably 18, 20 years old. I guess he's supposed to be in high school then. He's probably really 25 in real life. Um, Will's dad shows up and talks to Phil early morning. He says, I'm, I'm out. I want you to tell Will bye for me. And uh, Phil said, I'm not going to do that for you. You're going to tell your own son. And he walks out, turns around, and and. Will comes walking out. He says, I'm ready, Dad. I'm ready. And he turns around and he breaks the news. I, I can't take you, Will. And uh, his dad walks out and Will starts acting. He's like, ah, whatever. I don't need him. Blah, blah, blah. All this stuff. Uh, you know, this bravado. I, I, I got this far without him. And then he breaks down and he hugs his Uncle Phil and he says, why doesn't he want me? Why doesn't he want me? Some of you know that pain. Some of you know that pain. You see, earthly fathers have power. 
and used wrongly, it can cause a ton of pain. I'm going to paint with some broad strokes here about generations. And I want you to hear me and hear what I am and am not saying, please. When you think about generations or eras, you think about what's called the Gen Z generation. You think about the millennial generation that I'm a part of. I'm the older end of that millennial generation. You think Gen X generation, which is like a tiny, tiny generation. Gen X, tiny. Gen Z, tiny. Millennial generation, huge. And then the boomer generation, massive, which is above, which is some of you in your late 50s into your 70s. That's boomers. And then the greatest generation is their fathers. The greatest generation... Most, most of the greatest generation has died off. They fought in the World War II and, and uh, lived in that era, lived through the Great Depression, and some of them even remembered World War I in their earlier years. And over the last 100 or so years, 150 years or however, there, there's just been an onslaught of things that have decimated the family. At the same time of men going off to war, you had this feminism, first, second, third wave feminism, fourth wave feminism. And you've had industrialism that everyone knows about that removed the father from the home. When we think about our earthly fathers, there's so much that goes up into this fatherhood thing. You see, most boomers, baby boomers, most of them, not all, never heard their dad say, I love you, or show any affection whatsoever. And the one time they did show affection, they held on to that the rest of their life. They might have got a handshake. They might have got taught how to work hard, but most of the boomers' fathers, and this is for the ladies in the room too, as you reflect on your fathers, if you're this generation, your father was either absent or was emotionally disconnected or was a very hard man that didn't know what to do with his anger. Or he just went out, couldn't get close to people and ran away as soon as he tried to get close to people. These are the sins of that that greatest generation. And the boomers then experienced that. Most of the boomers didn't experience good fathers. Most Gen X and millennials grew up in such thick feminism with fathers who didn't know how to articulate the differences between men and women. It was just assumed. We grew up not having a clue what it meant to be a man or a woman. And the, the millennials, the, it's so true. Some of the stereotypes of, of the millennials are so true. And they're earned. And you can talk about and cast stones back and forth from generation to generation. But the millennial generation, the, 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 the hipsters, the basement thing, the video game thing. There are so many things that are earned. We just don't know how to do anything except be on the internet. That kind of thing. And then Gen Z... Is growing up learning insane lessons about gender and the church is over here tiptoeing trying to not hurt anybody's feelings. And there is so much confusion and we think about our earthly fathers. We think about how we grew up. There was so much at war against the truth. There is the enemy, the world, the flesh and the devil throwing everything they got at the truth. And we have generation after generation of sinful, broken men. And here we are. And we think about our fathers and we can just all say, yep, absent, gone. Maybe you had a really good father. You're in the minority. You're in the minority. Fatherhood is difficult in every era. But even if we had a bad dad, here's the deal. Even if you had a bad dad, you still wanted him to be proud of you. There is power over children that a father has. Even the worst of dads, the ones that are gone, the children, just like Will to his father, it's, I want my dad to want me, to love me. 
And we respected them. Children look to their dad, especially young boys to their father. And a boy's father is their hero, absolute hero. And when a dad lets their sons down, it's crushing. It's like, ugh. And if you had an earthly father, and somehow we respected him, even if they're absent, how much more would we be subject to our Heavenly Father? Because our Heavenly Father was not like that and is not like that. Your Heavenly Father is not like your earthly father. That's why we're learning about fatherhood through understanding God as Father. We're not learning about God through the inadequacies of our fathers. We're not looking at our father and say, well, my dad was like that. This must, this is how God must be. No, 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 no. Put that, that stuff to the side. Come on. Think better than that. More critically than that. Learn about fatherhood from God. In every single way I have failed as a father, my heavenly father has never failed me as a father. In all the ways that my father failed and all the ways that his father failed and his great grandfather failed. And I grew from, I'm from a long line of men that are really messed up. And God has been really gracious to me. And you may come from that same sort of lineage. But if you're a Christian, you have a heavenly father who loves you, who cares for you, who always has his eye on you. You're always in the palm of his hands. He's giving you promises that he will always take care of you. He's promised that you, if you ask, you will receive that he will give you every single thing you need in your life. These are promises that you can take to the bank. Your heavenly father has never disciplined you too harshly or different disciplined you out of anger. He's only disciplined you for your good. And that's what we're told. For they disciplined us for a short time as seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good that we may share in his holiness. God is disciplining him, disciplining us, so we can share in his holiness. Run, 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 run. Kids are so fast. They're so fast. And God, he always chases us down. He's disciplining us towards holiness. That's what he's doing. He's training us. Holiness is good for us. When we think about holiness, often what comes to our mind could be holiness codes. You could think about, I grew up to a Wesleyan holiness. I went to a college that was a Wesleyan holiness Pentecostal college. And holiness in that context can mean different, something different than holiness in another context. There's general holiness codes, codes that people will hold to. It's not just the Amish and the Mennonites or the, or the Pentecostals that do this. The good old Baptists would do that too. You can't play cards. You can't dance. All these things. We're like, David danced. I think dancing's probably pretty good. And, uh, and so... These holiness codes, but when you think about the context, what what is holiness? When our Father is disciplining us, training us, when we fail, when we feel conviction, when the weight of conviction comes upon us, when something doesn't go the way we want it to go, and it's a, it seems to be just arbitrary. What's God doing? He is training us and building us and disciplining us up, training us how to get through that particular discipline or exposing some sin in us. He's doing this. For holiness sake. And I just want you to imagine for a moment. For a moment, I want you to think about the utter relief of holiness. This is what one author called it. I'm not talking about these external holiness codes of holiness. But imagine what it would be like 
to obey the Lord from the inside out, imagine what it would be like to be free from every single weight and sin that clings so closely. Just imagine what would it be for a moment, one day, to not deal with any single sin. Relief. The stress that comes, you can feel yourself getting tied up in a knot. And whether you internalize it or externalize it, all of us deal with it in some way. What if for a day you experienced the utter relief of not struggling with any weight or sin that clings so closely? Relief. The relief of holiness. And God is disciplining us toward that. He's, he's breaking the sinful habits. Habits. He's building us up and making us strong. That we can walk in the way He would have us walk. And He's disciplining us towards holiness. Because Jesus beautifies His bride. And He will present the church to Himself without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. Because friends, there's going to be a day as we're walking on this thing called progressive sanctification. Not until after we die, but we are walking this road. And there's going to be a day that what's declared true about us that you are declared righteous, will be true about us. That we will be righteous. Holiness. No struggle with the sin or the weight that clings so closely. That stage a thousand clinger I talked about of sin just always pulling on you. Hey, I'm right here whispering your name. You won't struggle with that. And God is disciplining us toward that. And in this life, it's inevitable for every Christian, unless you're an illegitimate child, you are growing in holiness because God is breaking you down to build you up. He's training you how to live within his kingdom. Holiness. Conviction that points out, that points us to our sin is good. When God reveals sin, it's like this wake up call. Here, this is, this is what you gotta work on right here. He's disciplining us towards holiness. This is the holy cattle prod. It's, it's, let's go. Holiness. This is the discipline of the Lord. Chastisement. Conviction. And he loves us enough to make us feel uncomfortable under his fatherly care of us. He's always fatherly, always taking care of us. We're always in the palm of his hands. And he loves us enough to make us uncomfortable. He won't let us keep doing what we're doing because he's our father. And in the moment, all discipline seems painful. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. Can I get an amen? It all, it seems painful, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who are trained by it. In the moment, discipline seems painful. When we spank children, or when I was spanked when I was a child, and there's such a huge difference, and you gotta know this, spanking should be painful, but they should not hurt a child. If you know that's a distinction. Doug and Nancy Wilson have a very good point on this. In the same way, we should never spank out of anger, because God our Father never disciplines us out of anger. We should never do anything that we do with our children in a manner of correcting behaviors that is anything outside of what God the Father does for us. But he trains us for this holiness. When conviction comes, this holy spanking comes our way. And when that conviction comes, it doesn't physically hurt, but we know inside, it's just like what I talked about earlier, that conviction comes, you just know, I just, ah. And the enemy wants you to feel that conviction and run away from your father. And the Holy Spirit is saying, no, 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 no. Feel that conviction and run to your father. He's di 
he's, he's here. He loves you. He's bringing that conviction because he loves you. This is our Heavenly Father. And in the moment of the conviction or the discipline of the Lord, we don't see the pleasantness of the moment. But what we're told here is something amazing. Whether we recognize it or not, it's pleasant. It's a good thing to be disciplined by God. And there's something sweet in it, if we can recognize it. It seems painful rather than pleasant. But it's doing something. It's yielding something. It's accomplishing something. The discipline of the Lord is not arbitrary. In time, something happens. King David said this, It was good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. It was good for me. You see, he recognized, even in his affliction, which could be sin or sickness, even in that, even in that, God has something for you to learn. And on the other side, you get out the other side and you say, God, thank you. Thank you. I, I wouldn't have learned about your fatherly and your tender care in any other way than that. And that's, I love you. Thank you that this isn't arbitrary and wasted, just like the enemy wants me to think. It's no purpose, but it is purposeful. David said, it was good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. But what discipline does is, is, is clear. Later, it yields. There's a yield here. There's a crop. There's something that happens. And that crop, that yield, is the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Who wants some peace in their life? Can I get an amen? We love that word. We want peace. The peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. It's a promise. The discipline of the Lord in your life has its effect on His children. Christians are disciplined toward Holiness, it's inevitable, it's a fact. There is no such thing as a justified man or woman who is not growing in holiness over their lifetime with the Lord. Let me say that again. If you know the Lord, it is inevitable that you will be growing in holiness over your lifetime or you are an illegitimate child. And friends, often... This is why the body of Christ is so encouraging because it's so much easier for other people to see the work of God in your life than it is for you to see the work of, of God in your life. And there are times where it feels like, I don't, man, I, have some, I, I feel like nothing's happening. And everybody's like, are you kidding? I, you're like a totally different person than you were like a year ago. And it's obvious to see what God's doing. God's, what are you talking about? Stop that. Stop being silly. God's doing a work in your life. That's why being the body of Christ is so critical. The man or woman who claims to be a Christian but has no yield of righteousness is nothing more than a confused talker, a loud mouth, busybody. It's playing religious games that's illegitimate, that got in through the wrong door, that climbed over the door, that didn't go through the sheep gate. The man or woman who is just this vain talker but is not walking the way of holiness, never feeling the conviction of the Spirit, is somebody who over time will be revealed to be an illegitimate child. Friends, you and I want the conviction of the Lord. We want the discipline of the Lord. And for every Christian, we've got it because our Father loves us that much. So what now? What now? The, the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. The expectation is in this text that, friends, you can walk in this way and you can know and you can get this lesson and understand that there is a peaceful fruit of righteousness on this other side of holiness thing. That holiness is possible. 
You can really live a holy life, not a sinless life, but you can live a holy life. You can follow the direction of the Holy Spirit. You can be convicted and and be disciplined out of sinful habits. Pray to the Lord. Cry out to the Lord. Trust the Lord. And in time, as he brings his discipline and his fatherly care over you, you're walking the road of holiness. And it's good news. So now, now what? Here's the deal. There's a lot that's been said today. It's kind of been all over the place, but I hope you've seen the flow. Thank your heavenly father for his discipline in your life. Thank him that it's not punitive and wrathful, but it's loving and caring as a father to a son. Walk in his ways. Obey him quickly. Repent quickly. Don't turn your back on him when conviction comes. Run to him and just run and know that you can still boldly enter into the throne room of grace through the blood of Jesus. Trust that yields of righteousness and holiness are yours in Christ Jesus and are coming to you for the rest of your life. The rest of your life includes indwelling sin, but waves and waves and waves of overcoming sin. And of holiness that's seen and experienced. Peace. Righteousness. Because your Heavenly Father loves you that much. Let's pray.